0: This morning, a passage from the Gospel of Mark. After Jesus describes the kingdom of God as a mustard seed or a lamp on a stand, he calms the storm on the sea and miraculously heals three different people. Then in Mark's Gospel, there is this unmiracle story. This is chapter 6, the first 13 verses. He, Jesus, left that place, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph's? and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief then he went about among the villages teaching he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits he ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff no bread no bag no money in their belts but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics he said to them wherever you enter a house stay there until you leave the place if any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you as you leave shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and they cured them. This is a story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, if I haven't told you, I meant to, I have horses at my house well uh, they're not in the house (laughs) they are in the barn which is a hundred feet away from my back door but here's something new the city girl has learned it's possible for the house to smell like the barn (laughs) even though they're far apart I didn't think it would be an issue, but it is. You know why? It's the boots. Or the Crocs that are worn during the summer months to clean the horse stalls. The dust from the bottom of the boot that's visited the barn has a particular fragrance. So I have a boot scraper by my back door, and I have a very heavy-duty, unwelcome mat. And if I catch my ranch hand on the back porch, I beg him to leave his shoes outside. But here's what I don't do. I don't offer to wash those boots myself. I don't offer to wash those feet myself. You know, it was a gesture of hospitality in the ancient world to wash the feet of someone who showed up at your door. Because it was the feet that got all the wear and tear of travel, the way to welcome a visitor into the home was to clean the dust off of their feet. And if I'm a traveler and there's no hospitality, there's no welcome, well, I have to clean my feet myself. Jesus tells his disciples, the apostles, the sent ones, sent out into the villages of Galilee in pairs. If you are not welcome, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against the place. Now, some have taught that this is a way of cursing a place, shaking the dust off of your feet. It could be so. Whether or not it's a curse, it certainly is a symbolic gesture of the truth. The truth being, there is no hospitality here. I have to fend for myself. I must move on. The disciples, and Jesus too, to some extent, must rely on hospitality. Fending for oneself was almost impossible in the economy that they find themselves in. You see, they're not making money. They are not performing magic tricks. They take no supplies with them, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, just a staff, one tunic on their backs and one pair of sandals on their feet. How could they fend for themselves? They are bringing in the kingdom of God You know, everywhere Jesus goes, it's the kingdom of God. N.T. Wright says about this particular gospel story that it distinguishes Jesus from the Hebrew prophets. He says that Jesus is not saying what our Old Testament prophets said, which is the kingdom is coming. Instead, Jesus is saying where he is, the kingdom is Wherever Jesus is, the kingdom of God is there. It's a huge proclamation. But equally as big, equally as big as the notion that the kingdom of God is not forced on people. They have a choice. We have a choice. There is freedom. New Testament scholar Phoebe Perkins wrote that spiritually speaking, the mysterious elements of human freedom are at play in this Bible story. You see, Jesus' own family has the ability to choose to align themselves with what he is proclaiming or not. His younger brother James is mentioned as present in this scene, a puzzled, younger sibling. We know that James will become a great leader of the Jerusalem church. But here, here he's just one of the group in Nazareth. This group that provokes amazement in the Messiah with their unbelief. Verse 6 of chapter 6 says, Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. People from his own hometown are doubting his ability. They're doubting his wisdom. They say about Jesus, he's just a tradesman. He's a tecton, a stonemason, meaning he's not part of the educated class, trained to study the law, trained to study the scriptures. And they announce, he's the son of Mary. Where did he get all of his power? Both of those comments perhaps imply that his father is someone other than Joseph, the son of Mary. So where did he get all of his power from? I haven't seen anything like that in Joseph. The Bible doesn't say that this makes Jesus angry or that he argues with the good people of Nazareth. It simply says he's amazed. He's amazed at their unbelief. Unbelief shows up in a couple of other places in Mark's gospel. At the very end of this gospel, the resurrected Christ admonishes the disciples for their unbelief and for their hardness of heart because they did not listen to Mary Magdalene. They did not listen to the other two disciples who had actually encountered the resurrected Christ earlier. They didn't trust their news. And then in chapter 9, it's practically the middle of Mark's gospel is the story of a father with a son who is tormented by mental illness. It's mentioned in Matthew, it's mentioned in Luke, but we get the greatest detail in the gospel of Mark which is very unusual because this is the most concise and blunt of the four gospels. So I wonder is this story not the pinnacle of Mark's gospel? The father calls out to Jesus, if you are able, have pity on us, help us. And Jesus responds with something along the lines of, if I am able? And the father cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. I have been much helped by the work of theologian, Old Testament scholar, Pete Enns who talks about belief, spiritually speaking, as more than an intellectual process, more than what is going on in my head. Belief is not just an intellectual process, he says. It is an all-in process. It's a matter of trust. Trusting in the faithfulness of God. I believe, help my unbelief is help me, Jesus, help me to trust you. Isn't this a prayer that we could all pray every day? Help me, Jesus, to trust you a little more. Faith is a process. Most people aren't completely trusting God all the time. But what Pete N. says, and I agree, is that when we get there, when we get to the place where we trust God enough in our lives, we have a peaceful life. We have a free life. We're not at war with other people, and we're not at war with ourselves. Jesus' family will learn to trust him as the Messiah. The disciples will get there too. And so will we. There is a very practical way to learn to trust God in this life. And it involves the people that God has placed right in front of you in your own life. You see, practicing trust with other people helps us to trust God more. And trusting God helps us to trust other people more. You know, maybe this is one of the reasons that Jesus sends the disciples out into the Galilean villages two by two. Of course, they will be healing people with the authority that he has given them. But are they also going to be healed themselves? Learning how to trust God by trusting people, searching for and depending upon hospitality, and extending care to everyone they encounter— On my reading list right now is a book that was used in the parenting class this past spring here in the church on parenting adolescence. It's called Brainstorm by Daniel Siegel. He begins the book by talking about some myths of parenting, and here's the myth that got me. Growing up means moving from dependence to total independence. Independence. You know, at first glance, that sounds good to me. Moving from dependence to total independence, why is this a myth? Well, here's what I know about total independence. Total independence can be lonely. It can be isolating. And when I reflect, it's not what I want for my children to be without other people. It's not what I want for me. A better guiding principle for parents, Siegel says, is this, that we move from needing others' care during childhood to giving care and receiving help. He calls this interdependence. It is what I want for my children. It is what I want for me. It's the task the disciples are charged with, interdependence. Did you know that St. That Francis of Assisi was the child of a wealthy cloth merchant? And in an effort to live just like Jesus, he renounced the privilege of the home he was brought up in. He refused to buy clothes, the son of a cloth merchant. He wore any old garments he could find. He tied it with a rope. He gave up shoes altogether. He slept out under the stars, or on the floor of any chapel that he could find. He would work for food, but he refused to touch money. Sound like fun? Saint Francis thought so. He wrote about these changes in his day-to-day life, that what once appeared as bitter to me became sweetness. What once appeared as bitter to me became sweetness of the soul and of the body. And you know what? People were drawn to Saint Francis. They were drawn to his laughter. They were drawn to his fearlessness. They were drawn to his generosity and they left their own homes. They left their own families to follow what they perceived to be his fun-loving ways. It sounds a little bit like Jesus to me. You know what Jesus will do next in Mark's Gospel? In this very chapter that we read from, in chapter six of Mark's gospel, he will feed 5,000. He will feed a crowd of 5,000 in the wilderness, like manna falling from heaven. And then immediately after that, he will walk on water, like the parting of the Red Sea. Does it remind you of anything? Maybe the first story of freedom and interdependence, the story of the exodus, I would tell you this morning as we reflect on Mark chapter 6 to check your feet, because I bet your own feet are dusty. I bet they might be a little bit muddy. I'm convinced that people of faith, I'm convinced that disciples are those who are always on the go in search of a little more freedom. Sometimes it's in clumsy and imperfect ways, but you know what? There's always another chance to trust a little more, and there's always a little more freedom, a little more faith to gain. Would you pray with me?